There was a sense that everything you were doing was being watched and noted by others because we were all hanging out in such confined spaces. If you're at a party with someone you're seeing or someone you fancy, chances are they've got with like two other girls in that room, says one person. Kissing someone in the room was kind of like a violent act. That was Libby on Student Life in Manchester during the pandemic. A brutal social experiment. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from The Mill uh, with me, Daryl Morris, and The Mill's editor, Yoshi Herman. Hello, Yoshi. Hello. How are you? Yeah, good. What's you got a big smile on your face? Yeah, I've had a really good day. Have you? I had a great Tell day. me all about it. I went to Cheatham's Library. Yes, lovely. Have you ever been to that? Um, I, th- I, th- I think, in fact, I think I have. And I well, was, hang on. Well, have I was, you been or not? Because it sounds like you have. Well, I was really confident earlier when you said, and I went, oh, have you never, have you never been to Cheatham's Library? But were you thinking of John Ryland's library? I think I might have been thinking about John Ryland's yeah. library. Yeah, which yeah. is much more famous. Mm. I think I've been, I've been outside, it's, it's uh, Cathedral Gardens, isn't it? Yeah. That's where you get in. So I've, I know where it is. I've been outside. Have I been in? Take me into it. The key is going inside it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Wait, let me show you a photo. I know that doesn't work on podcasts, but still. Basically, it's an unbelievable medieval building. You see that? Beautiful. Beautiful. So, like, build... Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Old wood, not very light. Some books used to be chained to the... You know, chained to the the shelves. And um, Fergus, who's been the librarian there for 25 years or 24 years, he showed us round. And he was showing this old like encyclopedias from like 1550, like you know, like books like Henry VIII we were looking yeah. at. It's absolutely mental. He showed us this little alcove where Marx and Engels sat, and they and the books they read. So they sat in this little alcove. They got to know each other really well. Uh, Marx had been invited to Manchester, I think, by Engels. Yeah. And they were doing all this reading. Obviously, a lot of that led to their later like political writings together. So yeah. like very influential little alcove. I was kind of thinking like. All the regimes that have been communist in the past like 150 years, all the chaos in the world that's been created by those the ideas that were like germinated when they were sitting there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and went there with Maya, who's on work experience with us this week, and they like showed us a lot of cool books. Um, but the big thing is, I think because Rylands is much bigger and it's more publicly available, yeah, people know that one. But Cheatham's is actually much older. Yeah. So the collect the library collection I think started around sixteen fifty. Fergus will be very disappointed if I get it wrong. But I think sixteen fifty ish. Um and amazing collection. And um they do tours almost every day. They do, do they, they do, do tours. Right, yeah. So you, basically if you're listening to this and you want to go and book a tour of Cheatham's library, it's the oldest I think it's the oldest building in Manchester. Wow! Yeah, exciting. And doesn't that? It's quite interesting, quite telling that. Like that, I wasn't sure yeah. if it was that treasure chest yeah. that Manchester's got because Manchester's got so many. We've got so many good libraries. Places like so that. specifically yeah. libraries. Yeah. Like, we don't have that many old buildings. Like, we don't have that many medieval churches or anything. But libraries, we've got Cheatham's, yeah, Rylands, Rylands, the um, one that oh, what's the really pretty one uh, just off the Peter Square? Yeah, called? Manchester Central, N- Manchester. Oh, Library. yeah, so Manchester Central's it's obviously Central really Library, nice. Yeah, but what about the? Oh, oh yes, my, yes, yes. What am I talking? The where where people used to go and read newspapers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, yeah. It's a. What is that called? God. That's a good question. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to it by the end of the episode. Yeah, we'll uh, remember. Be in our heads. So there's that one. 
I feel like there's one other library that people talk about. Yeah. I, I think, like, perhaps before we launched into naming libraries, yeah, we, we should have been just... sure that we could have done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But either way, well, there you go. That's just a testament to how many incredible libraries. Not bad. We can name we, three we out of the five. We can't even remember them. Um, <laughs> there are so, so damn many. Um, but yeah, no, today was, yeah, absolutely incredible. So I highly recommend people go to that. Lovely. Excellent. Um, okay, listen, uh, we have a little bit of news and yeah. a bit of business to take care of. Yeah. Yoshi on this week's podcast. Very sad news, actually. It is quite sad news, actually, um, because you're this le- this Yoshi is going to be. What you, what you I was going to say you're leaving to London. <laughs> say, to it London. say it your way. Say your way. This is going to be our final podcast together. Yeah. Well, the final regular one together. Final regular. We'll one do together. the odd one together. Yeah. We'll be back. Yeah. Uh, uh, every now and again, yeah. uh, but our sort of weekly rendezvous, yeah, our yeah, weekly yeah. get-togethers, yeah. Um, end here. Yeah. 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 My friend. Yeah. Don't they? And we should probably explain why. We should, yeah. Um, so there's a little, a little bit of change in the air. I'm very busy with talk, with with Times Radio, and as you know, as I like to mention on a semi regular basis, yeah. uh, I am living my life on the West Coast Main Line yeah, yeah. Uh, between Manchester and London. And, and to be fair, when we started this together, you didn't have a daily show that you were doing. Yeah, am I right in saying that? Like when we started doing yeah, this, that's right. yeah. you basically had a bit of a lull between two different that's right. commitments. Yeah. And then you started this Times Radio show, and it's obviously been a really big success, and loads of people listening to it. But it it sucks up a lot of time, right? Yeah. Well, that first bit's debatable. Uh, the second bit is <laughs> the second bit is true. Just well, I've listened to it. Time. I think it's really, really good. Thank you. And, and actually, we featured the mill on it a lot. Yeah. And, yeah, and we'll yeah. talk about this because we're going to talk a little bit later on about. Yeah, yeah. I guess if if you will indulge me, a couple of my reflections yeah. uh, on working with you guys definitely, and definitely. some of the stories that you do, and and actually a big part of that is the fact that you've actually been quite a good news source yeah. uh, for my time's radio show, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, so yes, so we, we we there will still be a podcast. It may be a little bit more DIY. It may uh, it might may it may come out some weeks and not others, but we're still going to do a podcast. And, it, you know, I think hopefully you're going to be on the show sometimes, but you're not going to be a regular fixture anymore. That's it. Exactly. Um, so we are losing our star. <laughs> Basically, no, no. it's been poached. No, we're, no. we're a selling club. No, no. It gets better. All uphill from here, my friend. It gets a lot better. It gets a lot, lot better from here. Um, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's crack on, though. Uh, we've got a sponsor on this week's episode of the podcast as well, Yoshi. Um, can you tell me, tell me, please, about the sustainability show, who these guys are? And actually... My God, this is important. Not just a sponsor, but such a really important part of uh, saving humanity. Yeah, so this, this, these guys got in touch with us um, and said they wanted to be our sponsor on, on a few um, newsletters and also on, on, on the podcast. And it's super interesting. So the Sustainability Show, 8th and 9th of July, which is next. Soon. Next, next weekend. Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Next Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's this huge deal. So like Andy Burnham's there doing a debate about renewables and, 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 and the future. You've got eco experts, you've got authors, you've got someone who used to be on Strictly as well. I don't know how he's suddenly so involved, but <laughs> apparently he's very sustainable. Um, and you've got a charity supermarket full of secondhand fashion, lots of locally sourced food, drink, music. This is all at Manchester Central. And... Um, tickets are free and if you follow the link in the description of this podcast you will be able to get your free ticket and and do follow this link don't just like google it because obviously like you know that's our link Um, but it's really nice they're basically you know they're supporting us by sponsoring it but they're also getting the word out Um, the big thing that they want people to realize is there are like a lot of practical ways that people can make their lives more sustainable like because I think a lot of the I don't know a lot of the response to sustainability stuff is Oh god, it's overwhelming! Like there are so many things we do that are bad, like the plastics and the, you know, the straws and the driving, and there, there are so many aspects of life 
that feel very unsustainable, frankly, don't they? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. amount of plastic. Like I was at Pret yesterday, not slagging off Pret, but like I was at Pret and they, you know, you're having an iced coffee and then they give you this plastic thing and then like a minute later yeah. it goes in the bin. Yeah. And you're just thinking and then it goes in the bin and then it goes down the road to the recycling thing. It's like so much for, for energy. F- 15 minutes. For 10 of minutes of my enjoyment. I was just thinking, coffee, just yeah. give that to me in a paper thing. Yeah. So their big thing, the sustainability show, is that there are actually a lot of practical steps you can take and you will feel a lot more empowered to make a difference if you just can you know can understand the things you can really do. Yeah. So there are loads of talks. Um, Andy Burnham's doing this this really interesting event. I think Steve Rotherham, the uh, Metro Mayor of Liverpool, is also involved in that. Um, and there's a there's a ton of interesting stuff happening. So I would really recommend going along. Eighth and 9th of July, Sustainability Show, Manchester Central, and follow that link in our. Um, in our description or if for any reason that doesn't work go on Eventbrite and search a sustainability show Manchester brilliant what a brilliant idea yeah. really nice uh, good stuff it's, it's nice to support something that's genuinely decent so yeah yeah really thanks and thanks for sponsoring us yeah guys. good stuff good yeah. thank you to the sustainability show and uh, have fun if you're going along okay uh, let's crash on um, there's been a, a, a brilliant response yet again to a story in the mill this weekend uh, Yoshi um, and we, we've talked about this a little bit on, on previous podcasts but it's come to fruition this week and that is um Something you've never done before, which is which is basically having a stack of students kind of write a first-hand account of something that they've lived through and they've experienced, particularly life as a student during the pandemic. I thought this was one of the most original pieces that we've done in our three years of life. Um, it was a 3,000-word account of what it was genuinely like to live as a student during the pandemic. Like... It was, um, I've, I've, I've just said like, I've said like three times in, in the past 10 seconds, which is funny because when I was transcribing like the student stuff, there was a, there was quite a bit of that. And like they spoke in a raw and authentic way. Yeah. And we tried to build, I mean, everyone says like all the time. It's just funny. Like the younger you go with interviewees, the more you yeah. get it. But the amazing thing about this story was that I think it felt like their actual thoughts. And the way we did that is like we... We spoke about it for ages together. Uh, Molly was there, I was there, the students were there, until we had like a piece together that was was really powerful. And the thing about this story is that I think there's been a lot of coverage of universities during the pandemic from the standpoint of academics. Yeah. How far behind did people get? How much video conferencing, like video lectures, did people have to do? Um, how did it affect academic achievement? How did it affect mental health? And what these people were writing about, these young women who wrote for this story, um, let me get their names right, Libby, Mm -hmm. Maisie, and Ella. They all write for the Mancunian Mancunian newspaper, Mm. um, which is the student newspaper for, for Manchester University. And they got me along to give a talk. And... Afterwards, they were like, do you want to go to, you know, we'll show you the student bar. It's an enormous SU bar. I've never been to it. Right? Yeah, so I was yeah. like, okay, I'll come down. And we were sitting there and I just asked them a couple of questions. Like, so what's it been like? You know, I, you know, I was sort of not relaxing at the pub, but trying to be a journalist. Be like, what's it been like in the pandemic mm-hmm. as a student? And their answers were so interesting. And I think it helped that there were three of them there, or maybe even more, talking um, to each other and to me. It wasn't just like, I think, if you know, if it was just me and one student, it would have been different. But they were kind of like you know, riffing off each other's memories and, yeah. and, and stuff. And they had so many interesting points about dating, about mental health, about parties, about regrets. About... Give me some stories. I think that something that really struck me was that because they lived in flats most of the time, 
they didn't have societies they could join because of lockdowns for a long time. Yeah. They couldn't go to student bars. They couldn't go to student clubs. They couldn't join sports teams. So, so much of their life was so enclosed. And they described it as almost like a social experiment. Like, what happens if you put tens of thousands of teenagers mm. into extremely confined spaces mm. and get them to like socialize with no other distractions, no, no outlet, no other people you can go and speak to. And the way they described what happened is that it became quite toxic. Everyone turned inward. The only content you had to talk about was other people in your flat. They talked about it becoming very, very bitchy. Um, it wasn't all negative. There were also like very positive ways that they responded. People had like created like pub crawls in a house. So every bar was like a, a every every room was like a bar or club that closed oh, right, down yeah, in the yeah. city. So yeah. there was a lot of adaptation as well. But the way in which social life turned inward was super interesting, and the way that they felt, I think they felt a little bit like they'd just kind of been abandoned in these flats. Mm. And obviously, if you're in a flat with the same people every day, you're going to be very influenced by them. So they said there was more drug taking, generally speaking, than there would have been before. Because if there's someone in your house that's taken drugs before, you're more likely to get into it very quickly. Right, yeah. So it's not like you come to uni and then like normal, you go and find your gang. Like they are the tennis gang or they are the theatre gang or they are the, you know, like the music people or whatever. Mm. It's that everyone was just with the people they'd been randomly thrown in within that flat yeah right. so you get a very different experience they talked about these enormous parties that happened in um in oak house and in other accommodation blocks where you've got like 200 people in one flat they, one, there was an amazing quote in there where uh, one of the girls said um that someone they were quoting said like if you'd go to a party i'm, I'm going to paraphrase it yeah. go to a party and you're like there's someone you fancy whatever and then you are all these other people at the party who that person's also got with, right? Because like everyone is such a tight and enclosed space. Right. And she described like kissing someone becomes like an act of social violence. It's <laughs> <or something laughs> right. like yeah. so funny. So in this very, very enclosed world, in this very claustrophobic world, in a kind of boiling pot together, this social experiment, a lot of the social dynamics became tested, were more extreme, etc. That's why I thought it was such an interesting piece. Yeah. Because I don't think you normally hear that. I think when the Guardian interviews students they tend to get answers about the things they ask about, which is like your grades and your mental health and yeah, yeah. value for money. Do you feel like you've been screwed about that? But most of this was really about how they felt and how the social dynamics changed, mm. which I thought was amazing. Yeah, very, very interesting. Incredibly yeah. interesting. And, and you're right. I mean, it seems like a brutal way of describing it, but it, it was exactly that, a social experiment, wasn't it? Yeah. Really, in lots of ways. And one of them said... You know, throw eighteen-year-old me into that social experiment, and it didn't turn out well. So a lot, of, some of these people were basically saying, people they interviewed, people, uh, the writers themselves, first year was terrible because yeah. of this, yeah. and then it got better when we got to unlock down and meet people and go and find our people. Yeah, but it's just like, what happens when you don't get to go and find your people? And, w and what did you get? This, what, what sort of sense did you get about the debris? Because obviously, I'm going to ask you one of those really obvious questions now, one of those kind of like guardian-like questions, but. But in terms of the sort of debris of that and what kind of impact that's going to have on them as they enter the next phase of their life, what kind of sense did you get? I don't know. I think I think um, they have these kind of very mixed feelings of, wow, that was awful in many ways, but also it was kind of unique in ways. And like that, did we almost like experience something completely mad that no one's ever experienced before yeah. again? One, per one person in the piece described it as like, not as a blessing, but almost like, Destiny throws you these things and you see how you adapt. I would imagine that they have become mentally tougher than they would have had to been before. Right. 
that they have become acclimatized to like quite an extreme social scenario like but I wonder how it will affect their friendships and their relationships going forward I do wonder that and one of the really interesting bits of the piece was about dating and their observation is that boys in their life men in their life became less willing to commit so there's this whole idea of the concept of a situationship yeah right so it's like you, it's not just about like you see someone and then you're dating them and then you're going out. It's like there's this extra layer situationship in which everything feels like a relationship, but no, there's no actual commitment. So someone can just like take a week off from it. And they said that became a huge thing in the pandemic for some interesting reasons that they explain in the piece. Yeah. And I think that that could be a big legacy. Like right. if this generation has a has more of a sense of like it is more difficult to get men to commit in relationships. I think that's like that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Brilliant. Um, Really well, you say brilliant, not, well, not for them. Well, no, 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 exactly, no, not at all. Um, a brilliant read, a brilliant insight yeah, was, is, uh, was. Is, is what I'm shooting at. Yeah. Uh, ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go uh, to subscribe. You can read that right now, ManchesterMill.co.uk, yeah. um, and I would highly recommend you do. Um, okay, a couple of other news stories to get to as well. Come, And, and I'm seeing um, through down Monton Road, mm. where I live in Monton in Salford, yeah. on a more regular basis now, big yellow buses. Oh. Um, which say, I, I'm... This is something like I'm ready for the B network, yeah, or something like that. Because yeah. we're not quite there yet, are we? Really, um, uh, but also we've also been talking about, um, I mean, just the, the the B network at large. But the story that we're going to talk about today is bi- about bikes and about the bike bit yeah. of this B network. What's the latest on this? Yeah, so the B network for people who haven't quite got their head around it is essentially Andy Burnham's attempt to create a London-style transport system with more cycling, more public transport, and more walking than we currently have. And the bus aspect of that, the actual franchising of buses, so going to a locally controlled system rather than a completely privatised system, that actually kicks off later this year. I think it's September. Mm -hmm. So when they say ready for the B network, I think they're like, the bus bit of the B network properly launches. I think it's Salford is one of the first places. Salford and Bolton, I think, might be the first places it launches um, later this year, and then it gets rolled out everywhere. The bike bit of it has been having some real problems. So... A lot of people have noticing that these B network bikes, um, you know, higher bikes, those racks have been looking really empty mm. recently. And there's been a bit of like a kind of I saw a couple of tweets, you know, weeks ago, people started tweeting like, where are they? What's happening? Whatever. Um, Daniel Timms, who does a lot of the data stuff for us, he's also a cyclist. He did a recce of the city centre on Friday and he only saw one or two bikes available. He also looked at the website of Beryl, which is this company that runs the, um, the scheme. Yeah. And he created a map of the situation on Friday afternoon. Um, and of the 240 spaces in the area that we looked at, only 16 bikes were available, right? So right. 240 spaces, 16 bikes. Yeah. Almost two-thirds of the bikes, of the racks, had no bikes on them at all. So it's basically pretty useless if you go to a rack and there are no bikes there. Raising serious questions, he, he says, as to whether the network is even usable at this point. Um, now, the interesting thing is we went to Transport for Greater Manchester and said... How many bikes are just out of use? Like clearly they've just gone somewhere, and they wouldn't answer us initially. And they, they, they you know, we thought we'd have to put a, a freedom of information request in. Then the next day, they did put, put out a press release. Right. Um, they say three hundred and seventy-nine bikes are out on the network. Slightly confusing phrasing, but like 
not in the network. Right. And 564 are awaiting repair and maintenance. Wow. I mean, there's clearly a massive problem here. They are talking about a small minority of people who've been vandalizing them, basically, and, and, and trying to steal them. Right. Um, but actually, if you put those two numbers together, that means a majority, a really healthy majority of bikes are out of service. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we think there are around 1,500 bikes in total. Right. So we're talking about like the majority of the bikes are out um, or they're being repaired. So there's clearly been, I mean, my guess would be some flaw. Some, I, I, I've been told this anecdotally, but we haven't proved it, that there's like a bit of the bike that if you disable it, it doesn't charge you to take it back. Right. So that's why like, I noticed there was one on the end of my road the other day. There was one in Lady Barn Park. I think some people have worked out how you can basically just use these things for free and then dump them anywhere. Right. So clearly there's a massive problem here. And um, good reporting from Daniel Timms. Also some good reporting on Manchester Confidential by um, Jonathan Schofield. Yeah, it's right. so funny. I was in Cheatham's earlier. And the li- the uh, someone came into the room and they said to the librarian, uh, Philip Schofield's here with a journalist. <laughs> and I was like, bloody hell, what's Philip Schofield doing in a medieval library in Manchester? <laughs> Um, bit tight with his hands, I suppose, and then she was like, "No, sorry, yeah, it's Jonathan Schofield." <laughs> very good, which was very, very disappointing. Can you imagine if Philip Schofield had walked in? That'd have been great, possibly with Holly Willoughby. <laughs> that'd have been great. Yeah, that'd have been, that'd have been a great Clutching story. an old sort of manuscript. <laughs> it's like, Philip, what on earth are you doing here? That would have been a really good story. Yeah. Um, okay, that's really interesting and sad. I feel sad about it. I feel really sad about it. It feels a little bit like the Moabike situation all over again, doesn't it? You know, I remember. Yeah, so remind us what happened with that. Well, Moabikes were were a scheme. I think it was a Japanese company, wasn't it? Who mm. who um, introduced Moabikes, and they were a similar thing, really. Uh, you know, that you could rent them, you could you could um, swipe on an app, and yeah. you could hire them out, and you got paid by the. You, I think you got paid by the minute and, and by the mile, so it was it yeah. was you know, and it was relatively cheap. It was a really great way of getting. <laughs> you got answer. paid or you paid? You paid. So you paid. Yeah, you paid. By <laughs> it was the amazing. Minute. You it got paid, you got to, paid to do them. Um, and they were turning up in canals, and they were turning up sure. in you know in in parks and mm. stuff, and and it was it was sad. And actually, the company just went, we can't do this anymore. It's just yeah. not sustainable for us to do this anymore. Yeah. Basically, Manchester has wrecked our bikes, yeah. um, and there's nothing we can do about it. And that is very annoying and very frustrating. Yeah, because it's a great scheme. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. It's, it is. It seems weird that Manchester can't pull it off, but yeah, hopefully they'll uh, they'll fix it. And I guess you know. There are social problems at the moment. There are, there, you know, I, I don't know whether there's something to be said about the fact that people are really feeling the pinch and there's all sorts of stuff going on and that creates unrest and it creates unruly behaviour and I don't know, maybe there's a... Maybe, maybe or, or maybe or, or maybe, it, or maybe it's more prosaic and, like, people have worked out how to get free bikes and they're using that. Um, and that's just always going to happen. It's just part of... Maybe, unless you... I, I suppose it's like, can we design these things so that that doesn't happen yeah. all the time? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, big... Big issues with that network. Okay. Um, let's move on to, this is really interesting, a report um, into foreign ownership of football clubs. And obviously Newcastle United in the headlines, but also Man City. Uh, we talked, um, I, th- I think, week before last on the podcast, or was it last week, uh, on the podcast mm. about Man City and their treble win, but also their finances and where their investment comes from. What's this report said? Yeah, so this is a report called Easy Cities to Buy by a um, human rights group called Fair Square. And they're writing about the sports washing phenomena in relation to Newcastle and to Man City. And I think the interesting focus of the report to me was the focus on local politicians and local media. As in, like, why is it so easy for state-linked entities? It's not officially the state of Saudi Arabia or officially the state of Abu Dhabi or the UAE who have bought these clubs, but it's, you know, entities that are closely related to the state. 
Um, why is it that they've been able to take over these clubs with relatively little pushback? Um, and there's a quote from this report that I thought was worth highlighting. They say, the fair square right, there has at least been some coverage of Saudi Arabia's abuses, they mean, I think, human rights abuses, yeah. in Newcastle. The evidence that mainstream local media has failed to effectively scrutinise petro-state investment in football is far more striking in Manchester. Yeah. So they say there was one critical thing in the MEN about UAE sort of human rights stuff, but generally there hasn't been that much since the takeover. That's the point they're making. I have to say, I'm no expert on this. I haven't been... You know, some of this happened before I was in Manchester, so I don't, I don't know if I can be like confident commenting on it, but they are basically saying it has been national newspapers who've given this more coverage mm. and locals haven't. And there's a really interesting bit about the report about how when Man City became wealthier, they they bulked up their press department and were offering really great salaries to press officers to come and work for them. And they the report posits the idea that this press office has been really effective at marshalling local newspapers and, and local sports reporters to, like, toe the line a little bit. Um, and interesting allegation. But there's another quote from him. Um, it, the report notes that the main newspapers in both cities are owned by Reach PLC. And an unnamed local journalist is quoted saying, I love the MEN, but Reach is a disaster. They're not treating institutions like MEN with the respect they need. So kind of, you know, stuff we've talked about before about local media... Yeah. Um, Quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I don't. It's a funny one. Is the MEN fawning about the Man City owners? No, I don't think so. But they obviously do highlight the sort of benefits of the investment. You yeah. know, like, um, and maybe it's that's part of their role. I think people who are very switched on to this foreign ownership of Man City question think that the MEN hasn't done enough, and that the Sunday Times has done better on it, and the Guardian's done better on it, but, but that the MEN hasn't done enough. It's always trickier when you're something local, yeah, because you've got relationships in the local area, yeah, and you, I mean, half your readers are going to be Man City fans, mm. and half you rely on access. You, you you rely on access, but I also think there's a there's a subtler thing of you don't want to do bits of reporting that feel gratuitous or that or that you or that you feel like your fans would feel really alienated by your media brand. So mm. it is harder for for some local outlets, but. Um, very interesting report, and, and it's called, uh, yeah, Easy Cities to Buy. I also wonder if there's something there about the timing as well, because I think that we are much more alert to the idea of sports washing. I think it's become part of the conversation in sport. It's certainly become part of the conversation in the sort of political, uh, you know, the political sort of response to sport and how we've covered things like Qatar. I think the World Cup's made a real big difference to that. And um, and boxing as well. And obviously golf we're talking about a lot at the moment yeah. and their involvement there. And then Newcastle United happen and everybody's up in arms. Actually, the dominant conversation, aside from you know how, how pleased uh, Newcastle fans were to be rid of Mike Astley, you know, the, the dominant conversation around Newcastle's takeover was, do we feel comfortable with this? Is this something that aligns with our values? And, yeah. and is sport comfortable with this? We weren't having those conversations around the time of Man City's ownership, uh, Man City's takeover. That's true. I, I mean, I commissioned Jack Walton to write a piece for us recently about how Man United fans feel about the idea of the Qatari bid versus yeah. the Ratcliffe bid. Yeah. And... I have to say, I mean, he's a United fan, Jack, but he went to the ground and spoke to people. He spoke to people like who are like local um, podcasters. Like, there's the um, oh, what's it? What's the podcast called? It's the um, I think I'll, I'll remember in, in a minute. But there's a, there's a big local fan podcast, um, and I was surprised that the sentiment was quite pro Qatar, and you know, in, from a lot of these fans, and I. 
it's not that I think people want like a um, a, a foreign owner like from the Gulf necessarily or from Russia. Or, I think it's that there, there's an increasing feeling of like, well, if you want to compete at the highest level, you kind of need that amount of money. Yeah. But also this kind of thing of no one with billions of pounds is going to be entirely clean. Like you're not going to get a... Right. I think fans have given up on this idea of the perfect owner. Yeah, right. Like they, there might be an oligarch, they might be a Gulf prince. They, they, there's going to be some compromising stuff. I mean, people who make who have that much money or make that much money, there's yeah. often some compromising stuff. So, I think that it was interesting to hear in Jack Walton's piece that was on the mill recently how sort of pragmatic. Uh, fans yeah, have become about yeah. this kind of thing. That's interesting, isn't it? And and and, and Michael Bolton um, have been through the mill with bad owners, uh, yeah. n- not a patch on uh, <laughs> murderous regimes, but um, but certainly, we, and we've certainly spent overspent, and we've spent a lot of money trying to get into Europe, and we probably, in fact, actually, I was speaking to a guy yesterday called Simon Marland, who used to work at the club, he used mm. to work at Bolton Wanderers during the heady days of our European trip, and he was signing Nicholas and Elka and mm. JJ Kocher, and the, you know, he was the one doing the deals to sign the best players in the world. And I asked him that question directly. I said, "Did we overspend yeah. in that period, and did it result in our downfall?" And he, he kind of admitted that, "Yeah, we probably we probably did." Yeah. Um, it, it, certainly when we got relegated from the Premier League into the Championship yeah. at that point we overspent to try to get back and our demise happened and I must say as a football fan right now I'm really happy with a steady owner I'm mm. really happy with somebody who doesn't have a fortune but has a good heart mm. um, and is sustainable he's mm. looking at a sustainable business model and you look at Luton getting into the Premier League on a similar sort of mm. you know thing they may, they may not stay there I think a football fan's got to make a decision here. Right? Do, you, do you want to be in the top six of the Premier League or do you want a sustainable business? Yeah, but I think if you're a Man United fan... And it's a different... It's, it's complicated. It's, I mean, you are, right? And it's, I mean, it's I'm, complicated I'm, I'm a United fan. It is, I think it's really complicated. Especially given that the success you've enjoyed, how difficult the last 10 years has been. But I think local media certainly has to point out what we're dealing with. Okay, so who are these people who want to take over the club? What is their background? I think it's very unlikely that local media is going to get some original reporting in Qatar or in the UAE. Yeah. But I think it's incumbent upon people like the MEN and people like the Mill to point out, okay, who are these people? What are their links? What are the criticisms? Mm. Um who are the people because apart from just football they're big assets in the city so no I think all of us the report is a good reminder everyone should be pointing out to their readers what are we dealing with here I mean I don't think Saudi is the same as UAE and I don't think the UAE is the same as Qatar and I don't think Qatar is the same as a Russian oligarch there are different ethical questions relating to all those owners but no I do think it's our it's our job to point things out indeed okay that's almost it that's almost it, yeah. My friend. Yeah. And so the end is near. <laughs> um, hey, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, have you enjoyed it? I have really enjoyed it. Good. I have. Good. Um, it's been wonderful. We met via this podcast. We met via this podcast, yeah. yeah. yeah and It was Paul from Audio Always, who have been an amazing partner. Yeah. Um, helping us produce for so long. Here we are sat in their brilliant studio right now in Media City. Yeah, I mean, if you ever need any sort of podcasting help whatsoever, I mean, you've got to find these guys because they've been so nice to us. And they have, they, it was Paul originally, Paul Fernley, he had the idea, he got us together actually, didn't he? He said, we should, we, we'll help you out to, to get yeah, a podcast on the ground. He did, he did. That was like a year and a half ago. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's been 103 episodes. Wow, 103 episodes. We've 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 chatted around the Excellent. news in Manchester. We've met some incredible people, haven't we? We've we've talked to some Definitely. remarkable people. Uh, you know, I've mentioned this before when we've been looking back around Christmas times. But the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, in particular, I think. Do you remember was... that interview you did in that Ukrainian shop with mm. that Ukrainian woman, Oksana? Oksana, that yeah. was amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah and and and. and 
I think just doing what the mill does best, if I may say so, mm. you guys, which is peeling behind, peeling these the top line of a story away and mm. having a look at under the bonnet of it and, mm. and speaking to the people that are driving these stories and, and um, you know, building portraits of these people and mm. really, like you've done with the student story this weekend, really understanding what makes this city tick and yeah. who the people um, behind it really are. Um, and it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Oh. And I must say, so I do a lot of, as we know, as I've said, and if you pointed out earlier, you know, I do a lot of national media, national yeah. radio, my, my national radio show. There is a real tendency, I think, if without being unkind, to uh, for national media to be really Westminster mm. centric. I was always a bit skeptical about that. I was wasn't really sort of sure whether that was true or not mm. until I've done more of it and I realised yes, it is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's the seat of power, right? I mean, yeah. it's so important that we are there and that we're holding those people to account. Absolutely. One of the things I would observe is that I think a lot of people find it very, very hard to get beyond the M25, yeah. to get beyond SW1 or whatever it is, um, and never mind get, get beyond the M25. Yeah. And so to be able to, in a way that is really rich and compelling and um, with depth and thought and intelligence, hear from people beyond that bubble, um, I, I know that it really informs mm people in london i know that it really i know that i know that not only is it important to manchester not only is it important to local democracy here as well but i know that lots of people read the mill in westminster and lots of people read the mill in the times office mm. and times radio and they will say so themselves as well because i think being informed by the brilliant work that you do um is really important it's oh, really really you. important oh thank you very much and uh, and thank you for providing some content for my radio show as well. I really appreciate that. May, always, may that continue. It's always good to come on. No, I'm I'm, I'm massively grateful for for everything you've done. I mean, it, it hasn't been a money spinner for you in in, in any way, shape, or form, um, or for, or indeed for audio always. Um, and you know, we didn't have any experience of doing podcasts before, so the whole thing has been like a massive um, learning curve for us. But it's been really, really amazing of you that you've come on every week to talk to us. And I feel like we've we've done some really interesting stuff, and obviously the podcast will continue, um, and hopefully we can um, we can resume, we can uh, reconvene occasionally and have a chat. Definitely, we will do that. I've got you a really cheap bottle of wine. Oh, excellent! To say thanks. Excellent. So here you go. You can have a cheap bottle of wine. Hang on a minute. <laughs> You've moved away from the microphone. Oh, a card. I forgot. I'll get you a card as oh, well. Oh, you absolute legend. So there you go. Thank you. I might still have the price tag on it. I think it was eight pounds. Oh, thank you very so much. That's my. That's 103 episodes and eight pounds. Absolute worth legend. Of wine. <laughs> I'm gonna to have to um, gonna to have to come back at you with something when you come over for a for a drink. Um, shall we finish with some nods? Yeah, let's do some nods. And Myth has opened. Manchester International Festival is happening, mm, yeah. um, it, which starts uh, tomorrow uh, or today, Thursday, the twenty ninth, as, as, as this will be published. Yes, I think one of the shows, the um, Fuck Misk Saigon show, is already going on at the Royal Exchange. There are still tickets available and stuff, so that's a super interesting show. It's responding to. Miss Saigon right. and like the controversies around Miss Saigon yes yeah. um, and there is also the uh, Kusama's You Me and the Balloons which is this enormous show I think it's the biggest Kusama one ever um, it's in this new warehouse space at Aviva Studios so I don't think the whole of Aviva Studios is ready but I think they've got the warehouse bit ready for this right. show nice. so you can get tickets for that and that starts this weekend 
Um, and then there's the Festival Square as well, isn't there? Yeah, there's loads going on there, isn't there? There's all sorts of stuff happening at the Festival Square. It's, what I love about Festival Square is um, it's a really great place just to go and hang out. Like, yeah, and, and I think it's free, no yeah, tickets. Yeah, you don't need a ticket. No, so it's like Dave Haslam's, yeah. I think, uh, coordinating a night on, I want to say on Friday, I think Friday, so tomorrow night if you're yeah. listening when this comes out. Um, Friday, um, I think basically if you go to this Festival Square by Vivia Studios on the IOL, which is basically where Granada Studios used to be. If you go there um, Friday lunchtime onwards, there's music and stuff. <laughs> if you don't have a job, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you do, go after work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yeah, there's loads of stuff this weekend. There's a Maxim Peak show going on. Um, go to the Manchester International Festival website. Um, there is a ton going on. I mean, you know, as always with these kind of things, there are things that. You understand what they are from reading the description. There are plenty that you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But that's all the fun of the fair. That is. And we will be interviewing the artistic director, or maybe he's called the artistic executive or something, but basically the man behind a lot of the commissioning decisions. We're interviewing him on the mill this weekend. So nice. strap in for that. Brilliant. Excellent. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go for that. And um, my nod for the weekend ahead is the uh, Manchester Museum are doing some Pride tours, which is um, really nice because Pride Month is kind of wrapping up. Manchester Pride obviously is a couple of weeks away. So Pride is always a couple of months in Manchester, isn't it? Mm. Uh, but the sort of actual June month of Pride uh, is wrapping up with uh, some tours at the Manchester Museum and they'll take you around and they'll point out uh, some of the sort of some gay artists and artists that were sort of influenced or have influenced the LGBTQ plus community. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's just like, I think it's just, I think there's a lot of stuff that will surprise you uh, on that tour actually. Um, so they're running every day over this weekend, 3 till 3.40. So specifically, it's actually it's 3.10 till 3.40. It's a very specific time. Uh, over the weekend but if you're in and about Manchester and you've got half an hour to spare really worth popping in for that I think excellent thank you thank you very much Daryl high five thank you very yeah, much awkward high you've five been an absolute thing. gem thank an you. absolute mill gem uh, it's been a real pleasure and I will be following you I'll be back to yeah. do some bits and bobs here and there you better be um, but otherwise I will be following you and willing you on thank you uh, manchestermill.co.uk if you want to join me in being a subscriber yeah now you're just a regular member now, again. I'm, just a, now I'm just a <laughs> subscriber again uh, manchestermill.co.uk uh, Yoshi will be back in your podcast feed at some point soon so uh, don't forget to like and subscribe actually really worth doing that now by the way uh, like and subscribe and you'll get a nudge um, as soon as Yoshi as yeah. soon as you guys put some new stuff onto the podcast exactly. feed exactly. thank you bye bye